What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration. Our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. I'm Andrew Ross Sorkin, and you're listening to Squawk Pod. Bring in show music, please. This is Squawk Pod, the daily podcast brought to you by the team behind Squawk Box. NYC, this is CNBC Control 2. CNBC's Essential Morning Show. PCR 2. Every day, get the best stories, debate, and analysis from the biggest names in business and politics. All right, we're coming to it next. Today, Ed Stack, CEO of Dick's Sporting Goods, on taking guns off the shelf. When we saw that, we said, this system is broken. We need to stand up and, and say something. One of the first business leaders to take a stand on firearms. Plus, background on that story from Andrew that you'll hear only on the podcast. Oh, my goodness. My Squawk Pod debut. Elizabeth Warren's $800 billion plan for increasing tax revenue is hefty. It's larger than the GDPs of Switzerland, Saudi Arabia, or the Netherlands. But would it make a big enough impact on reducing the deficit? The Warren taxes pay for 125th, but at least we only got 24 25ths to go. We've got those stories and more. China versus the NBA, more turbulence for Boeing, vaping, another busy show. I'm CNBC producer Katie Kramer. It's Tuesday, October 8th, 2019. Squawk Pod begins right now. Stand Becky by in three, two, one, cue please. Good morning, everybody. Welcome to Squawk Box here on CNBC. We are live from the Nasdaq market site in Times Square. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. The conflict with China escalating today. The U.S. adding some more companies now to its blacklist and China scrapping the uh, broadcast of NBA games over the Houston Rocket GM tweet, which we talked a lot about yesterday. Yesterday, we filled you in on the surprising feud between the NBA and China. To recap, last Friday, Houston Rockets GM Daryl Morey tweeted in support of the Hong Kong anti-government protesters, which quickly prompted backlash in China. The NBA released a statement condemning the tweet, which Morey has since deleted. Then yesterday, NBA Commissioner Adam Silver defended Morey's right to free speech in an interview in Tokyo. And then there's the financial fallout to the business of basketball. Chinese state media CCTV and tech giant Tencent, which owns the digital streaming rights for the NBA in China, suspended broadcast of NBA games there. Chinese smartphone maker Vivo is putting its partnership with the league on ice. And the term Houston Rockets is no longer searchable on China's largest shopping sites, Alibaba and JD.com. Squawk continues to follow this story closely. Here's the latest from our reporter Eunice Yoon in Beijing. The foreign ministry today uh, kind of gave a hint probably about how they feel about uh, uh, the U.S.'s involvement, or at least the NBA's uh, comments about Hong Kong, in a statement that it said about a completely different subject, and that is the um, the U.S. Commerce Department's decision to expand the blacklist uh, for some of the Chinese firms because of the Muslim population in the far west. Essentially, uh, China said the U.S. should stop interfering in Chinese affairs. In other words, they want the Trump administration and the U.S. more broadly to butt out of their business. Guys? Hey, Eunice, very quickly, just in the last 10 minutes or so, Adam Silver has made some comments. You mentioned that he's in Asia. He's trying to take this on, and it's a delicate dance. Uh, He said, first of all, we'd like those to the NBA, connected to the NBA, to be sensitive to other people's cultures. 
He said, we regret that we have upset millions and millions of fans, but obviously trying to walk a fine line. He's also saying he's not apologizing for Houston general manager exercising his freedom of expression. Um, huge issue because obviously an American league, but in China, they have, I believe, double the number of fans that there are in just in terms of people of the United States, something like 600 million fans or more in China. And so it's obviously a huge market for them, but trying to walk a pretty fine line with some of these comments that he's, uh, that he's coming out with this morning. Yeah, that's right. And I think it's a fine line that the NBA has to walk and Chinese companies as well, because right after Tencent made that announcement that they were going to cut ties or suspend ties with the NBA, there was a lot of discussion online here about how Tencent had just recently inked a very huge deal to get the rights. I mean, some people were saying it's like $1.5 billion, so that hasn't been confirmed for a five-year deal to air NBA games. And uh, the most like the, the the comment that w- w- that you could see the most is that uh, Tencent decided to choose life instead of money, and that was kind of a hint that um, a lot of companies, if you want to do business in China, you have to fall in line with what Beijing wants. Right. Um, hey, can you also speak to the statement we we were talking a lot yesterday about Joe Tsai, who was uh, of course. Uh, uh, one of the uh, top executives, though I know he's just stepped down now from Alibaba, but of course owns the Nets here in the United States, coming out with that vociferous essay almost yesterday, argument uh, on behalf yeah. almost seemingly of the Chinese government and whether you think that that was directed. Oh, that's, it's really hard to say whether or not it's directed. But yeah, just there were a lot of people who said that when you look at it, he seemed as though he was... Um, saying all the right things that you would see in a foreign ministry statement. Uh, but he was, I think, trying to make the point that uh, there is some history and, uh, you know, that's gone back uh, uh, many, many years uh, that and, and the reason why China would feel so sensitive about um, Hong Kong and uh, um, having um, what they would see as foreign forces, um, either American or British, uh, coming in and, and what, what the Chinese would see meddling in their affairs. So he was trying to explain that. But I don't know if it necessarily went over very well, because even in China, you know, his background is Canadian and Taiwanese. So, you know, he's been able to benefit in a way that a lot of Chinese, mainland Chinese, haven't been able to in terms of freedoms. So, uh, you know, his point, I think, was uh, that uh, freedom of speech is an important American value. But, uh, you know, there are some uh, what he described as third rail issues that uh, shouldn't be touched. But um, even though it's it's not so openly discussed online, there are a lot of people who are quite critical of his remarks as well, because he's seen as a beneficiary of an open system. Right. And it's so interesting because he you know, bought this big stake in the Nets. A large part of the reason that he was accepted as one of the owners was this idea that the league was going to benefit from his relationships in China, given his uh, position and prominence at Alibaba. And now, and, and historically, the NBA has not taken uh, foreign money, at least as a full owner of a, of, of a, of a league or, or of a team. And so now you're in this position. Did he clear his statement with the NBA? Was his, is he now a prop to some degree? There are people who think that he's a prop of the Chinese government. Mm-hmm. All of a sudden, inside one of uh, you know the United States' most iconic sports you know leagues, it's, the whole thing is a, a very complicated situation. Yeah. yeah. 
And I think it also goes back to what, um, uh, Becky, you were saying, which is that uh, Adam Silver has to walk this fine line because it looked as though he was trying to say that he supports uh, the, the, you know, anybody, any of the the employees that they have uh, speaking their mind. So it looked as though he was trying to be supportive of people who would say something that's, uh, you know, positive about the Hong Kong protesters or that they stand with the Hong Kong protesters and also with Joe Tsai, that he would want Joe Tsai to be able to say what, what he wants. Sounds so like I thought that was, they all be that was interesting. <laughs> well, I mean, if you didn't have money, yeah. if, if <laughs> yeah, you didn't exactly. have money, the <laughs> interests involved, it, it, it seems, it seems like a, a no brainer. All of us would probably say, yeah, gosh, we, we sort of stand with the Hong Kong, uh, the Hong Kong protesters. We understand what they're saying and we are sort of behind them in their, you know, striving for more freedom and more human rights. And it, it, it seems like such an innocuous thing to say, unless you got a lot of money on the line. And then you're like, whoa, Whoa, what am I doing? I got to figure out my priorities, which is why the NBA came under quite a bit of criticism. They can, the NBA players and coaches can certainly criticize the government here uh, in, in our country, but uh, you can't, uh, can't even, like, body language on China. It's, it's very, it's going to get worse, I think, in terms of the, the two sides and how they yeah, view they this Eunice. Sure. Yeah, and, and I don't Yeah, uh, and it, I don't and it really started, I think, with uh, some of the... Yeah, I think it also started earlier when you um, saw the, the the debate around the Hong Kong airline Cathay Pacific, uh, because uh, they were coming under tremendous pressure from Beijing to uh, make decisions about the staff, um, you know, people who protested and to 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 uh, you know go after some of these people, and that sparked a discussion even within Hong Kong, like some of the the um, uh, American companies or other international companies in the in the region as to how much influence. Beijing was going to have or feel that they could have on um, internet, the, the decisions of international companies. And so you're kind of seeing that now spread out a bit into the NBA and, and maybe into um, you know, other companies. And it, it would appear that, that or one of the complaints that I'm hearing a lot is that Beijing appears to be trying to shape the way the outside world uh, discusses China and China affairs in the same way that the um, you know the people here have their uh, comments uh, censored. It's just hard to you don't want to be seen, and this is what's happening. You don't want to be seen coddling, you know, the Communist Party of, of China with the the Uyghurs or how do you say it? is it is it Uyghurs and, and internment camps and everything that we know uh, about it. But then again, we're the in Uyghurs. Tra- Uyghurs, yeah. and then again, we're in trade talks uh, yeah. with China, and we're you know deal with Saudi Arabia. So it's it's very there's a lot of hypocrisy with all of our dealings, and a lot of the hypocrisy is comes from that there are financial interests involved that sort of uh, take precedence over you know, conscience and, and human rights, which is just the, the way it is. At least, yeah. at least we understand what we're talking about here. Some news to bring you right now on Boeing. A new report saying that friction between the U.S. and European regulators could delay the return of the 737 MAX to service again. That, you know, there's this expectation originally would it be off, get off the ground, if you will, uh, in this calendar year. If it doesn't, when in 2020? And really... Can the can the can, is it possible for the FAA to actually approve this plane before the European regulators or from an optics perspective, do they effectively have to wait for all the other international regulators to say yes first? I mean, it, it, it's a big deal. It used to be that the FAA was seen as yes. the gold standard. Anything the FAA approved, all the others would go along with. Right. In this case, they are concerned, the European Union Aviation Safety Agency, 
they say that the FAA and Boeing, they don't think have adequately demonstrated the safety of reconfiguring yep. the MAX flight control computers. The aim is to add redundancy by having computers work simultaneously to try and eliminate the hazards that stem from right. a chip malfunction. Uh, I think the question is, they're not going to just go along with whatever the FAA says. And then effectively, I think, for Boeing's purposes in terms of getting this plane back into the air and successfully back into the air, they really feel like they have to wait to hear from all the other regulators first to almost credentialize what the FAA does in this case, given what's taking place. So complicated situation for them there. Also, by the way, there are then those in the airline industry in the United States who think this has become political. Well, it, to it say could. That the it Europeans could be. In a situation are trying where to protect the airline. And coming back air- after the WTO decision so, and then our decision to levy right. more tariffs on, Airbus. on right. not just on Airbus, well, on, that's, on, that's, that's on cheese and a, a bunch of the other things right. that came along with this. If, it, if you get into the situation where the U.S. has already used issues like safety issues right. or other emergency powers to do some of these things, it changes the rules of the game. So we will see what happens with Boeing. Separately, we should tell you there's a lawsuit taking place. Southwest Airlines pilots now have filed a lawsuit against Boeing, alleging that the grounding of the 737 MAX has cost them more than $100 million in lost wages. This is an interesting case. Southwest is the largest operator of the MAX, with 34 of its fleet uh, when the uh, 34 in the fleet when the jet was grounded worldwide in March. The union saying pilots agreed to fly that 737 Max based on Boeing's sales pitch that it was airworthy, which of course in this case it was not. Eventually, in a statement, the union saying the sales pitch was false and Boeing's errors. This is a this is a quote here cost the lives of 346 people, damaged the critical bond between pilots and passengers, and reduced opportunities for air travel across the U.S. and around the world. A Boeing spokesman says the lawsuit is meritless and the company will vigorously defend itself. But now you have another hurdle in terms of gaining the trust of uh, pilots, not just at Southwest, frankly, but across the world uh, about this plane. You have an ongoing lawsuit. When Southwest does bring this plane back into service in terms of the management wanting to bring back this back into service. Do the pilots say we're not doing it until this? Well, the pilots are mad because they say they've lost $100 million right. in lost revenue out of their own pockets because Correct. of the number because of flights of the, that have been canceled. So it all comes back to money. It always comes back yeah. to money. But the question is, if you're Boeing, then do you try to settle the suit? Do you try to play this out? Are the pilots going to be flying these planes even while there's an ongoing suit against the company over these planes? We'll see. The 2020 presidential election is over a year away, but predict it, a five-year-old political gambling website has been buzzing with bets on the candidates and the outcome for months. On the site, people are trading on everything from the U.S. Democratic primaries to how many tweets we'll see from the White House this week. Joe Kernan keeps his eye on the U.S. election bets, and he keeps us updated. Mark Cuban is now tied with uh, Beto. Uh, um, uh, You can buy a contract for one cent now. Yeah. Angry. Yeah. So you should. Yeah. There's like 20 people. I mean, um, Hillary is going pretty well. She's at like four or five cents. Um, Not even on the radar. So why, why? No, it is on. By definition, it's on the radar because it's on the predicted website where your people are trading futures. Look, I think it's based fair to say Bloomberg's that Elizabeth there. Elizabeth Warren has. She's at uh, 30 cents right now. And, and and after the Biden or after the Bernie Sanders news, his if he leaves the race. His supporters were He's way down his already. His supporters he, go to her. He's, and she, he's down at she, six. Yeah, but this isn't. Positions herself ahead of Biden. These aren't. 
percentages of who has votes. These are bets. So no, I know. It has no, nothing no. to do I, with but anyone saying, can make so you don't add them up. But, but it, it right. makes but you sense. Know, like the bets don't all of a sudden numbers. go to the other person when someone drops out. But, you know, it's weird because Trump's at 40 cents, but the, the Democrat taking the White House is at 57 cents. So it makes no sense. Like the closest, the closest Democrat to, to Trump is Elizabeth Warren, but she was down after the pregnancy thing. Did you see all this, yeah, this hoopla that. yesterday? Yeah. With, uh, that we're going to talk about maybe later. Anyway, this is really sort of disturbing. Researchers at NYU have uh, now linked exposure to nicotine from e-cigarette vapor to lung cancer in mice. It was a four-year study found that the vapor, e-cigarette vapor, caused DNA damage in the lungs and the bladder. More than 22% of the mice developed lung cancer. 57% precancerous lesions on the bladder. None of the mice exposed to e-cigarette vapor without nicotine developed any cancer over the four years. So this is what we talk about all the time. And and we just had someone the other day saying, yeah, no, there's no evidence that nicotine is, you know, harmful. And and you don't have the tar and the carcinogens from the smoke of cancer. You just have the nicotine delivery system, which isn't harmful. That's what we just were told. So I don't know. But I don't think we know. We've also had... Dr. Scott Gottlieb tell us that you probably don't want to use the lungs as a way of ingesting any drugs. But whether nicotine itself is a harmful substance, you know, I made the point that that why do you want to, you don't, you're not born jonesing for nicotine. Why instill a habit for something that you you don't even like? You can say the same thing about alcohol. No, alcohol, you get out. Alcohol tastes terrible. No, it's not the way it tastes. It's the feeling that you get in the social uh, lubricant. What does does nicotine do for you? I don't know. I'm not a smoker. Drink some coffee. I don't know. In other vaping news, Walgreens and Kroger are announcing they will no longer sell e-cigarette products. They're going to join a growing list of retailers making similar changes amid public scrutiny over vaping-related By the decision. way, I, I agree with all of this. I don't want kids I, I don't want to be cigarettes. A, I don't want yeah. them vaping. I don't, I don't want, them I don't want a nanny things. state, but I, I don't I, like I vaping. I don't like it either. What about secondhand vape? Have we talked about that yet? I don't we like the not. way it looks. I see people doing it. I'm like, what's wrong with you? You're, sitting, <laughs> you're all covered in fog and everything. And uh, they're mostly millennials that I see that are doing it too, Andrew. I'm worried about the. I do see. I do see a lot of young people doing it, and I'm not a fan, as you know. It, but it's even thicker than the and plumes I'm, are thicker and I'm than glad regular. That Walgreens and others are not doing this. So. Okay. Well, I know. Uh, you know. I know. I do. I do. I don't know what these stores would sell in your world. Uh, I'm just. You know. I'm surprised you're not arguing for personal responsibility. No, I, I am arguing for that. I mean, you got your your friend from Dick's coming on. I, he still sells those baseball bats and those hunting knives. So you got to ask him about that. Baseball bats. Well, if that's not enough of a tease. <laughs> Next on Squawk Pod, debating Senator Warren's tax proposals. All of them. Go after that wealth, and guess what? All of our standard of livings decline. And later, Ed Stack, CEO of Dick's Sporting Goods, how taking a stand impacted his business. We had people who were really enthusiastic and happy with what we did. We had a number of people who were really upset with what we did. Back after this. 
Electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. This is Squawk Pod. Good morning, everyone. Welcome back to Squawk Box here on CNBC. I'm Becky Quick, along with Joe Kernan and Andrew Ross Sorkin. It's hard to keep track of all the taxes proposed by Elizabeth Warren, so Robert Frank is here to break them all up and uh, break it all down and add them all up. Uh, he's the man for the job on this. Good morning, Becky. Well, she's got a plan for that, and she's got a tax for that. Elizabeth Warren has proposed five major new tax increases that add up to larger than the GDP of Switzerland. Now, the wealth tax which is her most famous, of course. That's a tax of wealth over $50 million. That would raise over $2 trillion over 10 years, or about $200 billion a year. She's also got a Social Security tax. That's even bigger. That would be a tax on investment income for high earners and a payroll tax for high earners split between employers and employees. That would raise an estimated $4.2 trillion over 10 years, or about $400 billion a year. Then you have the corporate profits tax, that's designed to make sure companies like Amazon make, who make profits pay a minimum amount of tax every year. That would be about $100 billion a year. And then there is the lobbying tax. That's the smallest. That's only about a billion a year. And she would roll back the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act. That's at least another $100 billion a year. So add it all up. The Warren taxes would total about $800 billion a year. That would increase the federal tax revenues by about 20% and is larger than the GDPs of Switzerland, Saudi Arabia, or the Netherlands. And it does not include, by the way, her Medicare for All plan, which would have a separate right. tax, and that's hundreds of billions of dollars a year extra. <laughs> so probably over a trillion if you added in Medicare for All. Does it answer a lot. A lot. And so, but when you take the tax piece, but we don't know all the spending pieces, you know, right now the federal deficit is now estimated to be $984 billion. That's which right. Which is the highest it's been seven years yeah. since 2012. Yeah. Does this solve that? No, because it would go to new programs. Right. I mean, we don't know whether these taxes would raise what she projects and whether they would be able to fund Medicare for all, college for all, pre, right. pre-K for all, all these, all these programs. And so if you build programs off estimated revenue that come up short, it could actually add to the deficit. Well, um, in fact, our next guest had a calculation for, for how much the taxes would actually pay, the Warren tax would pay for the actual proposals from certain segments. I think it's like one. Let's, let's ask him. Let's bring in our guest, David Gamage, Indiana University law professor, informally advised the Warren presidential campaign on a wealth tax, uh, and Joel Griffith, research fellow for the Institute for Economic Freedom uh, and Opportunity at the Heritage Foundation. That, I think that was your number, wasn't it? Um, Joel, one, uh, the, the Warren taxes pay for one twenty-fifth yeah. of and the, it, but at least we only got 24 25ths to go for what we really need to do. <laughs> and she has a plan for that, too. In fact, uh, a lot, if you add up all the proposals, the, uh, you know, taxing those that make uh, more than $150,000 per year, the payroll taxes, all of that, it still does not come close to paying for this bill. But on this wealth tax, what we know, the bottom line is that, number one, it's unconstitutional. But even if it were, it's economically destructive. People forget 
that capital is what makes us more productive. It makes uh, every worker able to produce more. It helps all of us live more prosperous lives. When you talk about a wealth tax, it's not just, as Elizabeth Warren likes to say, going after yachts and diamonds and Rembrandts. No, the vast majority of wealth in this country is actually invested in profitable, productive business enterprises. Go after that wealth, and guess what? All of our standard of livings decline. David, that's a point that Joel, Joel makes again and again, that it's not buried in a mattress or, or sitting in a vault somewhere, that, it, that it's being deployed in, uh, in American companies, in, in America, in, in entrepreneurship and everything else. Do you disagree with that? I agree that uh, revenues and assets and wealth of the super rich and everyone else is profitably invested. Uh, I totally disagree that a moderate tax on capital or on assets has bad economic effects. History suggests quite the opposite. The U.S. economy did far better uh, decades ago when we had much higher tax rates on capital. And in fact, the lack of tax at the high end is, in my view, damaging the economy. Um, I, I see all the time very complicated, economically damaging tax gaming, tax avoidance stratagems that waste resources in order to conceal them from our existing tax system. Patching our existing tax system to make bring it back to levels that would meaningfully tax the super rich and combat some of these tax avoidance games, in my view, would bring the economy back to a better functioning level. Plus, there's the issue of declining government investments and all sorts of activities that have historically been shown to be economically beneficial. Uh, and again, I think, yes, if the fact that assets and wealth are invested profitably is true, but that doesn't mean that a moderate tax in a way that patches holes in the existing tax system would hurt the economy. In my view, it would help the economy. But David, there's a recent paper out that, that talks about basically how much wealth the wealthy have and more importantly, where it's, where it's invested. And it looks like a greater share than we expected is in private companies. When you look yeah. at the difficulty of of valuing private companies, you look at goodwill, you look at a private business, how do you actually, you're going to have to have tens of thousands of IRS auditors auditing probably hundreds of thousands of wealthy taxpayers to get that revenue. Does that make sense? So let's be clear, a good portion of the reason why so much of the asset base at the high end is invested in private companies is based on current tax avoidance stratagems. And many of these investments are done in a way that are economically damaging. Uh, we see this for estate tax avoidance, where super rich pool their resources in a way that's well known to be inefficient, economically damaging in order to reduce valuations. Now, there's known ways to combat these stratagems that would be built into a wealth tax and honestly should have been built into the estate and gift tax a long time ago. Uh, there are formulaic measures for assessing the value approximately of private held companies along with limited use of assessment. And yes, IRS resources should be brought up considerably. Yeah, the fact is, the professor says the economy has uh, gone down relative to how it was 40 years ago. That's not the fact. The fact is, the median family <coughs> income is at all-time highs. The middle class is shrinking. That's because people are moving from the middle class to the upper middle class and upper class. This is census data. For him to say that the economy, for those that are the typical income earners, is actually less, that's just factually untrue. 
Right. Okay. Productivity growth and median wage growth is dramatically lower. Okay, we got census bureau data, sir. The debate continues, gentlemen. We appreciate it. Coming up, the CEO of Dick's Sporting Goods on the costly choice to limit the amount of guns sold in his stores. But we said that it would. We thought it would be about a quarter of a billion dollars in sales that it would impact our business, and it was just about a quarter of a billion in sales. Squawk Pod is back after this. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx. Earning your degree online doesn't mean you have to go about it alone. At Capella University, we're here to support you when you're ready. From enrollment counselors who get to know you and your goals, to academic coaches who can help you form a plan to stay on track. We care about your success and are dedicated to helping you pursue your goals. Going back to school is a big step, but having support at every step of your academic journey can make a big difference. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. This is Squawk Pod, taking you behind the sounds of Squawk Box from CNBC. Today, the CEO of Dick's Sporting Goods, Ed Stack. The stores have his dad's name over the door, but Ed has run the retail chain since 1984 and built it to what it is today, 800 stores and about $9 billion in annual sales. But he found himself going from the sports arena to the political arena. I caught up with Andrew Ross Sorkin about Ed Stack. He made a huge decision about a year and a half ago, maybe a little longer now, uh, right after the shooting in Parkland, uh, where he effectively eliminated all guns and gun sales from all of their stores. And that had been uh, a longtime component of uh, the retail experience at Dick's. He was one of the earliest leaders on this issue. I was struck by Ed's story about after the shooting at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School in Florida. He discovered that the shooter had bought a shotgun at a Dick's Sporting Goods location. And at that time, the store sold firearms, right? Assault-style rifles, large-capacity magazines. What struck you about his personal response to that tragedy? Well, I think he was one of the first business leaders to really look at the situation having just lived through it to some degree as somebody who sells uh, firearms and said to himself, the laws, at least as they're currently constructed, don't work. Um, And that he didn't want to be a contributor to the problem. And that's what he effectively said on on the program today. He said, the system just doesn't work. Um, If the whole idea of the laws on the books are to prevent bad people um, from getting access to guns, by default, something's not working. And his answer to that was to say, I'm out. What do you remember about the corporate response to that announcement? You know, at the time, he was a real outlier. Um, You heard virtually crickets. Um, There were not many business executives that wanted to step out and support him uh, in that moment. And there were a lot of people questioning whether it was the right decision or not. Uh, with an outcry in view that they were going to lose a ton of business. I look at Ed Stack as one of 
a growing chorus of business executives who are saying to themselves, I need to make profits. That's a huge part of my business. But on top of that, I need to figure out what our role in society is supposed to be and what the right thing to do is. And I think he clearly stepped out on this issue, was one of the first. And clearly over the past year, um, so many others have effectively credentialized what he's been saying by stepping into the same conversation. Ed Stack is here. He bought two bait and tackle shops from his father in 1984, and he never looked back. Today, Dick's Sporting Goods is the largest sporting goods retailer in the country with over 800 locations and close to $9 billion in annual sales. And joining us right now to discuss the strength of the consumer and much more is Ed Stack, Dick's Sporting Goods chairman and CEO. And he has a book out, and this is his first stop this morning. The book is called It's How We Play the Game, Build a Business, Take a Stand, make a difference, and we'll talk about some of those stands and stances in just a moment. It has been a remarkable ride over all these years, but let's just talk about the, the health of the consumer right now, given what Steve Schwartzman said. Do you feel it? Yeah, we, we feel it's, the consumer is in pretty good shape. Our business is really good. Our last quarter, we uh, our, our comps were 3.2%. We increased our guidance again for the, the balance of the year. So it, it, we, we feel the consumer is in pretty good shape. I mean, we talk every day about China and about this trade war. Has it had any impact on your business at all in terms of any of the products that are coming in that are being imported? Nothing meaningful right now. And, and when, we, when we took our guidance up, we indicated that anything that would be impacted by tariffs was included in that guidance. I mean, the other piece of this is you may see consumer strength now, but do you say to yourself, okay, you read all the same reports we do, uh, and everybody's, you know, not everybody, but there's a vocal chorus saying a recession is coming or at least a slowdown. I'm not sure about that. I know that right now for our business, what we see, we're pretty excited about it. We're pretty excited going forward. And the things that we've seen from the uh, people that we do business with, Nike, Adidas, you know, Callaway and them, of what the product cycle is going forward, we're, we're pretty enthusiastic. Is it um, regional? Meaning, uh, is it, are there pockets where you say that there's, there's parts of the country that seem materially right, stronger than, right than right elsewhere? Right we're now, doing, we're doing really well coast to coast. Can we talk about the book for a second? Sure. We did give the history of, of this little company. Yep. If there's been one big lesson in all of this for you, it has been what? Um, the biggest lesson, and I talk about it in, in, in the book, is that you have to have people surround. You have, you have to have people around you who are really smart. You have to have people that you listen to, and I knew that right from the very beginning. Because in 1984, when I bought the business for my father, the two stores, the very first thing I did was put together a board, and uh, I had some people in Binghamton that were, uh, you know, a little wiser, a little older uh, than I was and ask them to join this board, and they were extremely helpful. We haven't seen you in quite some time, and I wanted to ask you what you think the reaction has been, both on your business and in the investment community and more broadly, um, in the wake of Parkland, the stance you took around guns, taking them out of, out of all the stores. Um, what, you, what, what do you think the real impact of that has been? Because I think there's a lot of CEOs in the world who looked at that, uh, some of which agreed with you, some of which didn't, but all trying to gauge and understand uh, sort of the, the implication. Yeah. Well, w- when we did this, it was kind of a, a it, it's a really divisive issue. And we had people who were really enthusiastic and happy with what we did. We had a number of people who were really upset with what we did. And, uh, but from a stock price standpoint, really didn't have much of an impact on, uh, on the stock price. Uh, our team did a really great job of managing through that. And uh, after we made the announcement, each of the three quarters after that, we actually raised our guidance. With that being because said... Because stronger sales? Well, the sales were not stronger. We, we kind of guided to what we thought it was going to be, and then the, the earnings were a little bit better, and I think people were really concerned about the impact that it could have. And uh, 
the team did really a great job. But we said that it would, we thought it would be about a quarter of a billion dollars in sales that it would impact our business. And it was just about a quarter of a billion in sales that impacted our business. And then in terms of transitioning the business, though, and, and using that space on the floor for other things, right. do you think you're ever, you've ever gotten it back? I think we're in the process of that. Well, yes, we have, because as I said, uh, you know, in the last quarter, we reported comps of 3.2%. Uh, you know, our EPS number was up, and uh, we're re-looking at what we're going to do with the stores. Last year in the fourth quarter, we took all hunt out of 10 stores and uh, re- re-engineered that space for the, what was really... Was that, was that the, the sales shortfall you're talking about was just not selling that stuff, or was it that some people decided I'm not going to It was some people decided I wasn't going to shop any uh, for, for Even products. for anything. Yeah, not going And there, then it, on the flip yeah, side, yeah, though, yeah. do you think that you had... Because you'd go online and you'd see it on Twitter and others. Some people saying, I'm going... You know, I'm now going to shop. I'm absolutely going to shop at Dick's Sporting Goods. And then other people say, I'm absolutely never going to shop at Dick's Sporting Goods. The, the, How do you think that netted out? Uh, more not than positive. You know, more people didn't shop than actually came to shop. Um, and so when other CEOs look at what you did and say to themselves, I don't want to be in a position where more are not shopping with me than shopping with me, right? Yeah. How do you square it? Well, I think you got to take it. What's the long-term effect on your business? And we looked at this from a long-term standpoint, and we thought this was absolutely the right thing to do for the company the, the, long-term. I was trying to figure out, I mean, you're entitled to sell whatever you have. You don't want to sell tents, don't sell tents. You don't need to sell anything there. But you've got to satisfy the board, and the board has to satisfy shareholders. So the shareholders vote for the board, and then the board decides whether to keep you employed or not. So do you know whether any shareholders voted with their feet and said, I'm out of here? Uh, well, or any that said, gosh, I love dicks, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go in. I can tell you, Joe, we never had any shareholder who called us and said. And the, the, board, hey, the board didn't have a problem. You, you cleared we talked this with, with the board. We, well, we talked with the board. We had, two, we, we had two conversations with the board before we ever decided to do this. So the shooting in Parkland happened on uh, February 14th. We made our announcement on February right. 28th. Right. We were really thoughtful on how we would, were going to go about this, what we were going to tell the street, what we were going to do. Our management team was very involved. Our board was very involved. And to your question a second ago, Joe, we never had one, we never had one shareholder call and say, hey, what you guys right. did, I'm out. Right. Flip side, we never had any shareholder who said, <laughs> hey, you know what? Based on what you did, I love it. I'm buying your stock. And, and we should point out, he was the first in terms of leading this in that Walmart, the largest retailer in the world and largest employer in the country, followed suit. Uh, took, it, it took some uh, deaths in the store for that to take place. But nonetheless, so what do you say to other CEOs? I mean, there's a lot of CEOs now who have signed, uh, who have signed on to a number of, uh, of, of efforts right. to both lobby in Washington, change rules, not sell guns, use their leverage in the system. What's your view on that? I think if you see something that, that, you, that, that you think is a problem and you have an expertise in it, which we felt from a gun standpoint, we're one of the largest firearms dealers in the country, so we saw what the issues were, and we found out that we sold the kid in Parkland a shotgun two months before he, uh, before he did what he did in Parkland. It wasn't the gun that he used, but when we saw that, we said, this system is broken, we need to stand up and, and say something. So if you, if you have an expertise in this and you feel that it's important to say, then you should stand up and say it. Okay. Uh, before we let you go, I do have to ask you about it just because it's been the, it's the news of the morning. We've been talking about the NBA in China. You sell a lot of basketballs and NBA uniforms and all sorts of other uh, things. Do you think that, that U.S. customers are looking at this um, and are going to be debating the sort of freedom of speech element of this and, and sort of coming out in support one way or the other? I, I, we haven't seen anything yet. 
you know, what's going to happen down the road, I don't know. But I think it's a tough situation. I think everybody's trying to do the right thing, and, uh, and I hope they get what it all happened, worked out. In terms of when you were selling NFL gear, um, when Kaepernick was taking the knee and there was a whole issue around freedom of speech there, yeah. you ended up selling probably more Kaepernick jerseys in the end. It was kind of a wash. I mean, there were some people who were upset about that that weren't going to buy them. Other people came and bought them. So it was, uh, it was kind of a wash. Okay. Um, we thank you for being here. Thanks Congratulations for uh, thank on you. the book. Uh, Ed Stack, we appreciate it. The book is called It's How We Play the Game, Build a Business, Take a Stand, and Make a Difference. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks. That's today's Squawk Pod. Thanks for listening to our podcast. On TV, Squawk Box is hosted by Joe Kernan, Becky Quick, and Andrew Ross Sorkin. Weekday mornings on CNBC at 6 a.m. Eastern. To get the smartest takes and analysis from our TV show right into your ears, I say this every day, but it bears repeating, subscribe to Squawk Pod wherever you get your podcasts. We'll meet you back here tomorrow. We are clear. Thanks, guys. This podcast is supported by FedEx. Dear small and medium businesses, no one wants happy customers more than you do. That's why FedEx offers you picture proof of delivery, packageless and paperless returns, as well as weekend home delivery to 98% of the U.S. on Saturday and 50% on Sunday. See the FedEx service guide for delivery information. FedEx Ground service is also faster to more locations than UPS Ground. See what FedEx can do for your business. Absolutely, positively, FedEx.